You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to a new exciting week here at the conservative conscience here in Northern Maryland at our Northern headquarters of conservative review under blaze media. We're here for a new week, May 20th, a new week, but the same old problems. Nothing has changed with our stolen sovereignty. Nothing has changed with our border. Nothing has changed with the focus of our politics. Still all about Mueller, 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 investigation, investigation. You know, I was joking around with a friend today. I'm going to have an article out soon about Russians coming to our border. Heck, maybe now it will be okay to focus on our border problem. Now, if we could uh, show that Russians are coming, uh, if nothing else. But there's a lot of news going on. Um, the CBP has put out a statement saying it was in inaccurate information that the media was suggesting people were going to be dumped in Palm Beach and Broward counties. Um, although local officials are pretty clear that they were given a heads up. So was it a change of mind or was it inaccurate to begin with? I don't know, but either way, it doesn't matter because either way, they're releasing over 200,000 into our interior. If not directly, they do it at the border and then they go into our interior. So we're going to get into a little bit more of that tomorrow. But today I want to bring you a special guest. You know, one of the things we've promised from day one is not only to discuss things from a truly independent perspective, independent from pro-administration, anti-administration, uh, Republican or Democrat, truly independent conservative constitutional way of thinking, but also to bring on guests who are very intriguing that you would never hear elsewhere. Because frankly, the media, whether it's Fox or CNN, uh, the legacy um, you know, print media, they tend to bring on non-expert experts on various subject matter. Certainly, that's true on immigration. Today, I want to bring you a very special guest, a man whom I was introduced to by uh, Zach Taylor, border, a former Border Patrol agent we've had on the show a couple months ago. And I'm sorry I haven't brought him on earlier because everything we've discussed the last uh, number of months, this man has literally lived and often was in charge of orchestrating it. We discussed uh, the implementation of IRA, the 1996 immigration law that um, toughened things up and was designed to prevent the very problems that are going on at our border today. We discussed how we shut down the 1980 um, uh, Muriel boat lift from Cuba, the 1989 influx of Nicaraguans, the 1992-1993 boat people from, ha from Haiti, the second iteration of Cubans coming in from 1994. Well, guess what? Dan Vara was there. He served as an INS agent, the old INS uh, immigration officer, for 22 years, but he's also an expert in immigration law. Title 8 of the U.S. Code. You want to know what's going on there? He's got it. This is not a logistical issue. This is a legal issue. It's a lawfare 
problem we have at our border. He was chief legal officer for the INS in Miami from 1990 to 2003. So he oversaw the Haitian and Cuban issues we spoke about. Incidentally, he was also the lead counsel for INS's southern region from 1987-1990 that included Texas with the Nicaraguans in 1996. We're going to discuss that with him. Uh, interestingly enough, when he retired, he he also oversaw the transition from INS to ICE from 2003 to, to uh, uh, 2006. And then, interestingly enough, he was also um, the primary primary training instructor on enforcement for local and state officials under the 287G program. Uh, right when it, it came into to law around 2006, 2007, um, Man, this guy runs the gambit of so many interior and border issues we discuss every day. So with no further ado, it's an honor to bring Dan Vara to the show. Hey, Dan, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Daniel? I'm, I'm just upset I didn't, you know, I never heard of you until now. I, I don't understand why you're not all over the uh, Fox shows. Um, you know, we've got a problem. <laughs> we've got a problem that I still can't wrap my brain around. I still have to pinch myself. That even under this administration, we are well over a year into this advanced migration, qualitatively, quantitatively, the of which we've never seen, where people who just openly come in, they're released, there's nothing we can do about it. We're told that we need new laws to deal with it. Could you discuss a little bit about some of your past experiences in the 80s and the 90s? How in the past, after just one, two, three months of maybe 10, 15,000 people requesting asylum, certainly not hundreds of thousands, we shut it down and how you were involved? Certainly. Well, I, I was uh, uh, fortunately in a very unique situation. I had been a law clerk with the old INS uh, while I was going to law school in the D.C. area. And during that stint, I, I actually received two assignments that proved to be crucial in, in my career. The first was uh, studying the Medved case, which was a, a case involving a, a person who sought asylum, uh, wanted to get off a boat and, and down in Louisiana, and there were some issues. The second was I had to study uh, and present a paper on why we had such issues regarding the Marielle boat lift and all the folks that we sought to take uh, vessels from and, and to find, and the fact that we were losing all the cases. So... When I got out of law school and was hired and was sent to Dallas, um, I was a trial attorney for a year. Then I was promoted to assistant regional counsel in the old southern region. And while there in 1989, I was there from uh, 87 to 90, uh, we, it, it, I became one of the inner circle uh, legal advisors. I worked for a, a great fellow who was a regional counsel at the time, Pat McDermott. But anyway, I was, I was uh, part of the inner circle. And when we had the Nicaraguan influx, it was as simple. We, we held a meeting. Uh, the regional commissioner called all the top players and said, we have a problem. How do we deal with this? And in a, 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 to the best of my recollection, in less than a, two, three hours, we came up with a plan. And the plan was very simple. We've got to break the back of the movement. And how do you break the back of the movement? You break it by simply detaining, giving them their due process, and then returning them home. Because the one thing we knew based on our experience was that the majority of the folks who were coming were at most economic refugees. They didn't qualify under the immigration laws for asylum. 
uh, they were all asking for asylum because that was their ticket to get out. And that had been the ticket in when they came in, in, you know, trickle form. That was their ticket to get out of custody. So we pitched this plan to Washington, as far as I know, it was pitched to the White House. And I believe within 24, 48 hours, we got approval to proceed. Um, and we simply put it into place. We got tents. We started sending judges. We started sending trial attorneys. I was one of those trial attorneys that went down there on a, on a two-week rotation. And as I used to you know, say, the hardest thing that we have to do as trial attorneys is to say government waves appeal because it was a very simple hearing. We'd have 30 to 40 um, aliens come into the, to the courtroom uh, for their what they call the master calendar, the initial appearance. And they would all get up there and because they'd been coached, they would say, I, I want to I want to stay in this country. I want asylum. And as a trial attorney, my job was simply to say, OK, I, I seek a proffer. And, you know, if they were represented, of course, the attorneys knew what that meant. If they weren't, they, you know, we explained what that meant. Basically, tell us, uh, give us in, in succinct fashion the facts that indicate that you qualify for asylum. And in probably 95 percent. Uh, or more of the cases, they simply couldn't. They simply said, I want to stay in this country. It, you know, I don't like my country. There's a war down there. There's bad things down there. Uh, and I can make money here. So I want to stay. Again, economic refugees. So as soon as that came out, I would move to Peter Mitt, meaning, judge, you have no reason to send this case over for another hearing for the, what they call the master calendar or, or the merits hearing. This person is ineligible for asylum. And and the judge would, would have no choice but to say, I agree. And we'd get a final order that day. And the alien would have to decide only one thing. Do I appeal it uh, and keep myself in custody? Or do I take the order and go home? And the majority of folks would take the order because they didn't want to stay in custody. And they did it because they knew that for once, they weren't going to get out of custody and they weren't going to be able to disappear. And, and that is the most crucial thing that the immigration laws allow for what's going on today. And that's that if you break the back of the movement, if you prevent the goal, and the goal here, again, is economic, get into this country, even if you only work for a year and you get caught by immigration or, or ICE now, and you get sent home, that's a year's worth of US-based wages, as opposed to the wages you're gonna get in your country. That's gigantic. If you cut that off, if you if you tell people you're not going to make a cent, you're you were caught at the border, you're going to be sent immediately back, and the word gets out, people stop coming because it's no longer economically feasible, and that's been the gist of every matter I've been involved with, from from the the you know Nicaraguans to the time that you know I was promoted shortly thereafter, sent to Miami as a chief counsel, and then I encountered the Haitian and then the, and the Cuban crisis. And because of my studying of the Marielle boatlift, that's a special case, I came up with a novel theory to deal with the Cuban crisis uh, that worked very effectively at breaking that, the back of that movement. So that's it. I mean, that is it in a nutshell. It can be done so easily with the current laws in place. Why it hasn't been done? I would tell you that from my sense as an outsider now, it's politics. It's pure and simple politics. All politics. Um, you know, I want to unpack that. You you 
brought a lot of information to the table there. And again, it's very special because I, you know, I was writing about it as someone who was a young kid at the time, let alone someone who even, you know, certainly was able to do it professionally. And here I meet you, you're the one who did this, what I wrote about. Um, and I didn't even know that. So what I found fascinating is that, you know, if anything, there was more legitimacy to this migration, at least at least initially. There was a coup. You did have the Sandinistas overthrow the ruling dynasty there. It was very much a part of our foreign policy, fighting communism to try to bring in legitimate asylees. Initially, earlier in the 80s, um, you know, according to the New York Times, well over 70% of them were at, or 87% were approved. Their their claims were approved. But nonetheless, what happened was by the late 80s, there was a hurricane, 88 into 89. And, you know, that's when you start to see the economic migrants piggybacking off of that. And I looked at the numbers according to the Congressional Research Service. The whole crisis was 18,000 from June 1988 to March 1989. It was a total of 18,000 Nicaraguans came in at Brownsville. And nonetheless, that was deemed a crisis. And like you said, you guys sat down, you dealt with it within a few months was over. Your former boss, Alan Nelson, the commissioner of INS said, we intend to send a strong signal to those people that have a mistaken idea that by merely filing a frivolous asylum claim, they may stay in the United States and done. Here we are. I mean, I've, I was warning about this towards the end of 2017 when the Trump effect was wearing off and they were coming and we kind of saw the game of family units. We saw the court cases and we said, look, this this has no floor. This is really a problem. And now we have well over a year's worth of hundreds of thousands, not just coming, but we know now at least 200,000 released, at least 170,000 by ICE, 33,000 as of a couple of weeks ago by CBP directly into our country. I mean, to my knowledge, not too many of these Nicaraguans were ever released in, into the country. Correct me if I'm wrong. The effects are enormous and there's no impetus to act. It, it, it's like, we can't, we can't do anything. So let me ask you this. Am I not wrong in suggesting that the era you lived in then was before we strengthened our laws? That if, if anything, with expedited removal, mandatory detention shall be detained? Um, aren't the laws stronger now? Well, yes. I mean, they're supposed to be, and, and that's the other fallacy of, of immigration law. Um, it, you know, the laws are there. It, you know, it, we've had tools, the, the government has had tools, the U.S. has had tools forever since the 52 Act. Uh, it's what you do with them, how creative you are, and what you decide to enforce. I mean, taking you back to your discussions, it, it, I mean, it, it, you obviously have studied the issue when I was a brand new trial attorney in 1986 in Dallas, Texas, we would oppose every every case that came in from El Salvador because the U.S. government had to declare that Duarte was supposedly uh, on our side and he wasn't doing bad things. Every case that came from Nicaragua, we obviously were told, you know, nicely, don't oppose to you know, too strictly, too urgently, because, hey, they're fleeing a communist regime. And the politics always have a play. So you're absolutely right. It comes down to the, the laws keep on getting changed. There's there's arguments. I mean, 
Another prime example of that is all the stuff you hear about, you know, post 9-11. Again, I lived 9-11. I was with the government. I was already doing counterterrorism work, you know, before 9-11. And when you hear that they've changed the laws to capture people and to identify them and all these things that happen at the airports, uh, I, I wouldn't bet my last cent that that really works because it doesn't. What, what what do you mean by that? Um, well, the, it, it, the, the typical, I, I'll give you a perfect example. And, you know, I was one of those people that was, again, an insider. And when you hear that, that they've, they've strengthened the screening procedures so that any person who is involved in terrorism who comes to the, you know, to a port of entry is going to be identified. It, that's assuming that a terrorist organization is going to send one of the you know, folks that's already known to authorities that's wanted by France or England or one of the friendly countries in it, that's already in a system that's already been targeted by one of our, you know, agencies such as the Central Intelligence Agency or NSA for for certain associations. If the if the person's clean, if they've been to training, if they've been, you know, uh, called out of a village and nobody knows about them, what is there to check? Unless the person blows it, you know, because they're too nervous or makes a mistake or has, you know, fraudulent documents that, we, that the government can can identify, they walk in. And you're saying this is even at the points of entry, the the airports, the visa system. For, forget about the border. Sure, sure. I mean, and, and it's I mean, it's part of what you and I have discussed briefly, you know, in our prior conversation. That that applies to every facet of inadmissibility. If a person comes in with a highly contagious disease, um, you know, how much screening really occurs, do we know really occurs, if that person's not showing uh, outward signs of a disease? They get screened for a variety of things and the public health service is part of the, uh, you know, review, but Again, if there's an incubation period, you really think they're going to hold somebody for a month, six months, if they otherwise appear just to be a regular old Joe coming to the United States? That's that's part of what I think the American public doesn't understand, that the, the real threat against our national security is there. And it's exploited all the time. And the weaker we are in our enforcement, the more it's going to be exploited. And it's exploited for all sorts of reasons. I mean, again, even... Some of our supposed, you know, friend, friends and partners uh, want to know what we're doing in industry, want to know what we're doing, you know, in, in our advancements. Uh, folks come into this country for all sorts of reasons, some for very good reasons, some because they're legitimately fleeing persecution, some because, you know, they want to live a better life. I, I mean, I'd come to the United States, too. But there's also a lot of other folks that come in for other reasons that, that of course, we all, as American citizens, should say unacceptable. You're not accepted here. You're not wanted here. You're, we're not going to allow you to come here that way. You, you know, you, you wow, you bring up so many things here, um, and we've we've done so many shows on this. I'm going to have to have you back again because <laughs> we're going to have to unpack this. But this is what always bothered me. I call it the Amelia Bedelia reading of law, where you know you'll have a hundred clauses of the INA that are written for the American sovereign the sovereign people, to ensure, like you said, that the, the, the fixed factor is no one comes in unless we have certitude that you're not a problem, not a health problem, not a gang problem, 
not a criminal problem, a terrorist problem. And the American people come first, right? That's rooted in sovereignty. You know, the plenary power doctrine from the courts for many years said it's rooted in ancient principles on that the political branches, the people expressing through their elected representatives must determine who comes in. But yet there's no lawyer for the American people. There's no lawyer for the sovereign. There's no lawyer for law enforcement, although I know right now you you happen to practice immigration law helping whistleblowers and people, you know, from DHS and the various agencies who have stories to tell. Um, but there aren't, you know, th- there's nobody to enforce 1182, for example. We talk a lot about on this show the 1182 inadmissibility. So 8 USC 1182, A1, A1 and 2. The very first, it's funny because it's before terrorism. The first inadmissibility. Any alien who has failed to present documentation of having received vaccination against, you know, vaccine preventable diseases, which shall include mumps, measles, rubella, polio, um, all sorts of things. And and by the way, we now have cases of mumps in Hidalgo County, Texas. Um, uh, Honduras declared a national emergency on that last September before the caravans came. And then moreover, 8 U.S.C. 1222A requires the government to detain them, quote, for a sufficient time to enable the immigration officers and medical officers to subject such aliens to observation and an examination sufficient to determine whether or not they belong to inadmissible classes. So am I not, am I correct in asserting that just because you come to our land border instead of an airport, you don't have a better hand at that? I mean, you know, if we are concerned that there's hundreds of thousands coming in, we can't determine. So all things equal, you're out. Well, that, that's correct. And, and unfortunately, again, it's it's a volume business. And at the port of entry, I mean, any, any of us have, that have traveled abroad and are coming back even as U.S. citizens, you know, you, you hate to stand in line at the port of entry. Uh, it's a requirement. And, you know, I, I'm wholeheartedly in support of, of the screening process. Uh, but. That compared to if, if, again, the majority of the American public could go to a southern border when an influx is occurring, and if they could see what's really happening, you, you know, when I hear, you know, President Trump use the, the term invasion, it is an invasion. I, I've actually been to the southwest border, uh, in fact, in, you know, California, Tijuana area, on, on what they used to call the VIP tours. I, I was friends with Gus Delavino, who was the head of the Border Patrol there. And uh, you'd go on the night tours and you'd see these people staging right before sundown. And this is before major influx. These were just Mexican nationals seeking to come into the United States. And they would come in mass at night, knowing that a certain percentage was were going to get in. I've actually, because I'm a native Spanish speaker, I've actually interviewed some of these people that we're pushing back across the border. And I, you know, I jokingly asked, uh, uh, I remember this one fellow, I said, listen, I, you know, I, I, I'm with the INS, so you don't have to talk to me, but because they were already sending him back. I said, but I'd like to ask you a question. How many times have you come into the United States? He says, I don't know. I lost track, but 20, 30 times. I don't know. And I said, so you got caught today. Yeah. He said with a smile. I said, when are you coming back? And he looked at me and he kind of shook his head. He says, Tonight, just like that. I mean, because for him, it was the whole idea of the more I try, the more chance I have of actually entering. And unfortunately, that's what gets sold. And this, this, these are contiguous countries, you know, a contiguous country. So it's easy for them. They, they're there. 
but when you when you have what you're having, for instance, right now, the influx, part of what's kind of again trickled out is that there are folks that are instigating some of this. You start telling people in a in a place like you know Honduras, Nicaragua, you know what, you can leave your poverty situation, and right now is the time to go because right now your chances of getting in are pretty good because of volume, because of politics, and because once you get in, based on the broken system, you're likely to make it through. They're going to release you. You're going to be allowed the opportunity to get into the American mainstream. And again, even if you're one of the unlucky few that shows up for your hearing, you lose, they take you into custody and, and deport you, uh, you will have worked for a year, maybe two years, maybe three years in the United States. That's, it's the magic kingdom. I mean, again, if I was living in those conditions and I knew the situation was the way it was, and I, I might be a absolutely honest individual, I would go. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I think I looked at, there's 90-something countries that have a lower GDP per capita than Guatemala, which is about 4,400 per person. I mean, that's I, I, I haven't done the math, you know, on the population. It's well over a billion people. So, and, and indeed, I mean, I, I just spoke with the HSI SAC in, uh, um, I know you didn't have HSI in your days, called something else, but uh, in El Paso. And he told me, yeah, I mean, there's families coming from everywhere. They're coming from Turkey. They're coming from Russia now. They're coming from uh, Angola. Uh, by the way, many places in Africa where they have problems with Ebola. Um, it, it's not a unique thing to Central America. The only reason why they're coming more from there is A, geographically is closer, and B, they have so much family here. Um, so there's more family unification going on. But it's it's the whole world. And, and, and that's what struck me. When we had this, it was one country. There was something unique going on there. It's Nicaragua, it was Cuba, it was Haiti after the Artiside regime was was overthrown. here th There's nothing new going on. It's literally executive policies mixed with forum-shopped California judges bastardizing the law, and that's what changes everything, right? Well, absolutely. And and I'll tell you, if you wanted real proof, and, and I did a lot of work, uh, again, I was doing counterterrorism work in the, from the early 90s, and uh, it, you know, I used to you know, train some of the JTTF people, FBI folks, and I'd say, listen, you know, one of one of the biggest, biggest uh, sources of information is flight itineraries. I learned that from a senior uh, immigration inspector in Miami who I actually represented in a, in a matter against the U.S. government years later. But, but when, I, when I got into private practice, but anyway, he taught me this this concept of being able to go into you know, the indices, pull out a flight itinerary, you know, put out the manifest uh, and find out how many one-way tickets were coming into a certain location from certain source countries. And I bet you, because we were doing uh, at that time anti-smuggling work, I bet you if if you got into uh, or the U.S. government got into a coordinated effort, which I'm sure we are, doesn't get advertised, with Mexican authorities and you found out how many folks are coming from these third countries into Mexico City on one-way tickets, guess where they're going after they land? They're, they're going to try to enter the United States. I mean, it's a, it's a prime source. Uh, and, and again, people just don't pay attention to it. But, but there's, it, the information is out there. The enforcement ability is out there. The, the laws are, are there. But if, if, again, if you have, uh, uh, you know, folks like 
some of the judges, the Ninth Circuit, you know, that allows certain things to happen in their jurisdictions. You have judges that say, you know what, I'm not going to enforce this or that because I don't like the way it it, it looks or, or seems to me. Uh, then, you know, you, you create magnets and magnets always attract, you know, more in this case, uh, illegal immigration. So I, I want to move back. I'm going to go back to some of the specifics of, of the law. You know, the ba- I call it the base law. There's the base INA, and then there's the shutoff valve, which is 1182F. Um, the executive power to always close things down. Um, we say many times on this show that it's not just you know 1182F, the president's ability to shut down any immigration anytime he he wants. It's inherent executive power. Nafi Shaughnessy, 1950, the Supreme Court said the exclusion of aliens is a fundamental act of sovereignty. The right to do so stems not alone from legislative power, but is inherent in the executive power to control foreign affairs of the nation. What I think about going on now is, like you say, this is not some natural disaster where you know, they just kind of show up. This is orchestrated. It's orchestrated by the most dangerous smuggling groups, cartels, who are certainly financially benefiting from it, but then strategically use the flow to get in anything they want. Anything right. they want. I, I, so you've dealt a lot with the counterterrorism side of this. What is your thought when you see that the world knows that, A, at the border, the agents are babysitters, so they're tied down, they can't patrol, so Border Patrol is not patrolling, at least much of the area, because they don't have the resources. And then B, the secondary immigration checks. A lot of people think they're narcotics. They're really not. They're immigration checks. If, you know, it, going north and outside of El Paso, New Mexico, they see anything suspicious, SIAs, maybe, you know, you have a couple of Middle Easterners some, suddenly coming up out of the roads from El Paso. Hey, what's going on here? Um, they're down. They're down in New Mexico. I've confirmed that with CBP. All six checkpoints in El Paso sector are down. Um, if I'm Iran, if I'm any of these countries that don't like us, I'm not going to send a guy with an Interpol hit out on him. I'm going to send, like you said, a first timer. Right. I mean, and, and that's, that's the other thing, you know, if, if, if anyone has been involved in, in, in espionage work and, in, in, uh, in military operations, it, you know, part of, of the strategy is always exploitation. You exploit the weakness of your opponent and you exploit information. You exploit everything you can for the specific goal that you're seeking to achieve. And if somebody were to, to tell me right now that they bet me, you know, uh, $50,000 that, that uh, none of that's happening, I'd bet, I'd bet on a whim if it was illegal uh, because I guarantee you, there, there are probes. There are things going on when, when this country starts having the type of issues that we're having on the southwest border. There have to be probes. I, I mean, a foreign entity that, that is not uh, a U.S. ally who, who is not friendly to the United States interests would be silly not to seek to exploit what's going on because it's an opportunity. Mm. And that's the business of that kind of work. See, to me, it's inconceivable that it's not happening. If I put myself in their shoes, so one of the things I've been exploring recently is is Castro. Um, right. You know, you got the big three from the Northern Triangle, but seemingly they they haven't put out recent stats. But I think what everyone seems to agree is that the number four country in terms of numbers is likely Cuba at this point. Maybe Nicaragua is is close, but Cuba. 
Um, I'm told by HSI and DEA in El Paso, and I think it's been reported in the media already, that in Juarez, the Cubans have taken over the hotels. Um, the cartels have allowed them to engage at least in um, street-level prostitution, um, gang uh, rings, and uh, drug dealing. So, you know, with with the Cubans, you're bringing in the criminal elements of the Cubans. To me, it makes no sense at a statecraft level that Castro wouldn't realize this is a time to get in, in his espionage. Putin, you know, we, we were hear, hearing that there are Russians come in. If there's Russians coming in, you know that there's got to be Russians that you don't see coming in. And all the places we know that um, the cameras are seeing them come in and they can't get to them because they don't have the resources to get out there, especially where you don't have paved roads. Um, that's what really bothers me now. What sort of effects we're going to see down the road from all these people likely getting in? Well, well, that's absolutely the case. I mean, again, I was intimately involved. They created the theory that allowed us to arrest espionage agents uh, here in South Florida. I mean, we, we had uh, the, the case that's a published case. I mean, I had done a prior case that, that's still classified. Uh, a certain part of it is classified. But the published case is, uh, involves a fellow by the name of uh, Rodriguez, and he was a, a spy handler for the Cubans working out of New York, and he was managing agents here in South Florida. Now, again, you, you know, Castro had his agents, husband, wife teams, for the most part, working, trying to infiltrate the U.S. government, trying to infiltrate the Cuban community, exile community, etc. If, if you know, we shut off the valve, we, we ended up uh, nailing a whole bunch of folks down here. Uh, and the U.S. Attorney's Office got involved and prosecuted a few of the WASP network folks. Uh, but I was involved in all those cases. We shut it down for the most part for a period of time. But again, I guarantee you that it's active. It's never stopped being active. And if, and if they can get Cuban agents in through Mexico in, in a much easier way than they can get them in through the port of entry at Key West or, or in Miami, they're going to do it. Why wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. In, in addition to the punks and the gangsters and the criminals, we focus a lot on MS-13, and it's certainly a problem. They kill a lot of people. Um, but you have it at a statecraft level, too. The espionage, I mean, it's just very, very concerning when they know um, that our secondary checkpoints are down and that, you know, just as, as a defense of the border, it's down. Um, you know, you go back to immigration law, and one of the things I just cannot wrap my arms around since, you know, in the middle of your career, we passed IRA-IRA. And one of the main points was to end this lawfare, to go back to the 1890s where what due process meant was very simple. You have the right to open your mouth in front of an immigration officer, not judge, but officer, and say, hey, what's your story? All right, I don't like it. You're out. Okay? There's no... You know, it, it's sovereignty. It's not like any other crime. It's not a crime. It's sovereignty. It's just an extension of, you know, you come to my house, I get to push you out. Um, I can't beat you up and lock you in my attic without due process, but I could push you out. I mean, that's 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 my territory. And what what the gist of the law was is that anyone caught here that's been here less than two years and he has to prove to the satisfaction of the immigration officer that he's been here two consecutive years. 
And if not, you are out and it's unreviewable, not just by an Article 3 judge, but an, uh, but, but an IJ, anyone. Um, that's number one. And you say, well, what, what if they say they have a credible fear? Well, first of all, credible fear is very clearly defined. You know, none of these people, especially from the Northern Triangle, should apply. You know, it shouldn't apply to them. But either way, two things. 1225 says shall be detained during that period. And number two is they could be turned down by the immigration officer anytime. And then the appeal on that is, correct me if I'm reading this wrong, it's no later, it, it's, it's ideally within 24 hours, but no later than seven days. And then, and then you're back in expedited removal, even if you start, you know, try to veer off that path with credible fear. But if you're, if that's shut down, um, and according to CRS, you know, the, none of this, expedited, uh, you know, credible fear, um, whether di- disagreeing over the immigration officer's determination, whether this is an expedited removal case, all that is not gestatable. It's, it's, it's done. I mean, the, I, I remember the point of Ira Ira was to end the lawfare. So I, I don't get how we have today's result after the passage of, of 96. Right. But but it, it's again, you know, the, the I don't I, I wouldn't call it an exact misinterpretation, but it's a manipulation of of the law and, and the implement, implementing regulations, because, again, you, you, you can you can make everything much more difficult. Than it should be. You can make it much more complex. Uh, again, you know, just the volume factor. Once, a, it, like for instance, a, you know, credible fear. Somebody says, "Okay, I want the judge to review it." Well, if the judge gets the case and reviews it that day, it's done. But if the judge sits on it for thirty days, sixty days, ninety days, and that's one case. If he he or she sits on a case for you know, or, or 30 cases or 300 cases exponentially that becomes an a, unmanageable problem. You can't hold these people indefinitely. And some judges, some federal district court judges is going to say, cut them loose. So that's what happens. That's what's always happened. When we were planning, when we got wind, uh, I, I went to a meeting involving the, the Cuban issue in, in 94, 95. And everybody was concerned about, you know, I mean, everybody in, in federal law enforcement in Miami was concerned about what, what are we going to do? This is going to be bad. We're going to have another Mariel. And the planning, I sat through, through the initial meeting and the planning was all related to what do we do with them once they're here? And mm-hmm. that's the issue. I mean, yeah, everybody, including public health service tells us, uh, uh, you know, we, we need to do this. We, agriculture says we're not going to let them in unless, you know, we, we get to seize all the, you know, fruits and vegetables they might try to bring. <laughs> and, you know, people had their various concerns, which were, to me, really crazy. And I said, folks, why are we having this discussion? We need to stop them from getting here. Because once they get here, there's so much interpretation of our law by the executive branch, by the media, by the public, and most importantly, by federal district court judges, we got to prevent them from getting here. And that's what we did. That's how we broke the back of that particular uh, crisis, by keeping the vessels that were here in the United States from going to get them and bring them to the United States to create the problem for the United States. Because once they land, 
I mean, Cuba is a special country because, again, it, it's on top of the regular asylum laws. We can't return people unless they accept them. Uh, and so we were going to have a mess. That is that that is what what everything you talk about right now. Again, the law is on the books. If we had done things back in the Obama administration to prevent the beginnings of this and we had worked with. Mexico and even some of the other, the host countries, the initial countries, and said, even if we have to pay you, it's worth our while. But this is why, or this is how we want to do it, and this is why we want to do it. And we prevented folks from getting here, we wouldn't have this problem. Even if even a few thousand trickled in, that's better than what we have today. And now we have such a problem on our hands, the volume itself is what creates the issue. And all you need is something, you know, it gets addressed all the time. All you need is one judge or a circuit court issuing an injunction that they apply nationwide. And guess what? Everything stops. Man, it, it, it's frustrating because, you know, I, I look back at, um, and I think this is right, at 93, one year before that with the, with the Haitian boat crisis, really it was 92. Um, George W. Bush sent out the Coast Guard, or George H.W. Bush sent out the Coast Guard to interdict them. And they actually sent them to Guantanamo. And, and again, there was more legitimacy to those asylum claims than today. 10,000 of those who were processed at Gitmo were eventually given the right to come to America. There was a regime change. You know, there was some political stuff going on there. It wasn't just economic. But nonetheless, he still shut it down. To the, immediately when they saw they'd be released into America, that was unacceptable. To me, the values back then was the fixed is Americans aren't on the hook for it. All things right. equal, we might try to engage your, you know, indulge your claims. But but if it's not feasible, let's say the base law cannot work the way it is. You know, OK, in this case, 24 hours, rocket docket, no more than seven days. Oh, but it's too many. The fact that smugglers succeed in so much illicit and often evil activity that they bring more people than ever shouldn't give them a bigger right to, you know, oh, so now the default is Americans have to eat it. No, you have to eat it. That was the mentality. Clinton said that was immoral. He ran on reversing that. Um, he won election, and then they started building boats. Man, this is our opportunity. Clinton saw it. Um, there was actually a very cute comment from, uh, you're, you're from Florida, you'll appreciate this. You might even remember the quote at the time. Alcee Hastings, he was the congressman. Um, he said, hey, when you're faced with new realities, then you have to deal with them. Clinton, the candidate, did not have the benefit of much information that President-elect Clinton has. And literally four days, I think it was four days before his um, inauguration, he gave a speech on Voice of America radio, and he said to the Haitians, this is this is not happening. You cannot come. We'll open processing if for you in, in in Haiti, but you cannot come. We're continuing the policy. Um, there was it was never put on hold by a district judge. I don't think there was an injunction, but ultimately, either way, eight to one decision. Sale the Haitian Immigrant Center. Um, they said that eleven eighty two F the powers of the president to um, shut off migration trumps even asylum, and that was the end of it. I mean, did I did I miss anything? I, I just, you know, I'm I'm going nope. from from research. You lived it. <laughs> right. me in no, here. no, you're no, you're you're absolutely correct. I mean, again, I was on the ground with all that. I was the chief counsel in Miami, and uh, it, 
one of the, the interesting things, of course, once the determination was made from the executive branch, from the White House, that we weren't going to allow this because, again, we were all advising is once they land, and we had had a couple of landings of vessels with 300, 300 400 at a time. Uh, we also had a lot, some some pretty significant issues of people drowning and you know vessels uh, being capacitated en route and having to deal with that. Once that happened, it was a, a very quick fix. Once people said, we're not going to let this happen, we got to keep them out of the United States. I mean, we went through all sorts of processes, but we used to do what were called PD-27s. We'd get phone calls in the middle of the night. You know, uh, we've got a vessel coming in and decisions were made very quickly. Certain principals in South Florida, in D.C., got on these telephone calls and decisions were made. And usually we turn them around. We we'd send them back to the point that at some point we we actually the U.S. government actually uh, I remember at one point uh, rented a, a cruise ship uh, and kept uh, Haitian nationals that were seeking to come to the country on cruise ships while they were processed for credible fear determinations and det- a determination of who was going to get to come to the U.S. for the full asylum hearing or not. I had attorneys that worked on my staff that we actually put on Coast Guard vessels that were trained, basically, where they called them APSO officers, uh, asylum pre-screening officers. And if, if vessels were interdicted on the high seas, our, our, our attorneys were involved in the processing of, of these supposed claims. And again, the majority of claims were economic, and they were returned back for either repatriation or if, if it appeared that there was something there, potentially further screening and um, and then uh, being sent to the United States. But that's how you have to deal with these scenarios. If we in Miami and, and it was a it, Miami is a pretty big. The, the old INS district was a pretty big district uh, with a lot of people. But if we had not put a stop to it, if all these vessels that were being being used to bring people 300, 400 you know, at a time had been allowed to enter the United States, they would have broken our back. We would have, uh, thousands of people would be in South Florida right now that really had no right to be here. You know, it's funny because you think about it and you look at all of the various times this happened, they nip, maybe they didn't nip it in the bud, but it was pretty close to it. And it was a few thousand here, a few thousand there. The worst ever, of course, was Muriel um, boat crisis but even then, I mean, you look at what happened there. I think it was the worst. It was really May of that year was the worst month. It was eighty six thousand, twenty thousand in June, and then and then that was it. it was down to two three thousand afterwards. So here every month now we're over a hundred thousand every month. Um, we're I, I think I counted. We're likely up to about a million Central Americans. Uh, depending on how how far you go back, a million, and there's no end in sight. Um, what I want to get your take on is that I understand you're saying, look, politically, because of the judicial supremacy, the lower court supremacy, the judicial resistance of the legal profession, basically applying, quote, constitutional norms in the context of sovereignty and deportation, we have those problems. But But ideally... So in your case, they're with their maritime migrants. So, yeah, you prevent them from coming on the shores. But 
still legally, even if they come to the land. Here's what I'm reading. I want to see if you have a different read in law. You have the famous Kaplan v. Todd case in 1925 that, you know, someone who comes here is, quote, to be regarded as stopped at the boundary line and kept there unless an her right to enter should be declared. Um, nearly six decades um, ago, the Supreme Court already said that, quote, for over a half a century, this court has held that the detention of an alien in custody pending determination of his admissibility does not legally constitute an entry, though the alien is physically within the United States, as Leng May Ma v. Barber in, in 1958. So it's as if they're that you can't unilaterally assert jurisdiction. Ha ha ha. I got on your on your shores. Now, the Cubans were different because legislatively we gave it to them, but we took that away anyway now. I mean, you know, Clinton, uh, Obama ended that. But, you know, Central Americans, you, you don't have the right to assert jurisdiction. It's as if you're not here. So what I don't understand is I remember seeing a case um, in 2003 from the Second Circuit. This is CSA v. INS where Clinton shut off all immigration from Sierra Leone. There was a military coup in 1998, and he said, we're not letting any, any of your people in here. A guy came in, and in 2003, years later, um, he was being deported, and he said, no, no, I have a fear of being returned to Sierra Leone. I'm, I'm an asylee. And the court there said at the time that, no, it doesn't matter. You couldn't have been one because you're inadmissible. Well, what do you mean? He stepped foot in the country. He's been here for years. But no, you were never allowed to enter. You're inadmissible. So I just don't understand why the president, you know, again, I'm not talking politically, but just pure legally can't say, you know, the same thing he did with Yemenis or or, or um, those from Iran, the five countries. If you come to the land border, you're not better off. You don't have a stronger case. You're inadmissible. So why can't he just invoke that? Well, because again, the unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, depending on perspective, asylum law, torture convention, those things trump the rest of it. it you know, uh, the Congress has given foreign nationals due process rights to a hearing, to a certain amount of adjudication. And, and again, those of us that have been in the immigration service you know, sometimes shake your head because you say, this is so frivolous a claim. This is outrageous that we even have to go go through the motions. But that's the, the state of affairs. And and the problem is once a person makes it in, again, it breaks down because they have to get processed. Even if there's a determination to hold them, you, you know, you got to present them to a judge. The, the immigration courts are so backlogged. Uh, in my opinion, based on volume, there's a certain part of it based on inefficiency and sometimes even uh, a lack of willingness to proceed on certain cases. Uh, so it, because of all that, you go back to the custody issue. OK, can I continue to hold this non-criminal, non-threatening you know, uh, alien in custody indefinitely because our system's broken? So the answer is no, because all you have to do is file a habeas and you're going to end up with some judge, even in a conservative jurisdiction, at some point saying, how long is enough? How long do you need to process this alien and give them their due process? Because that is the bottom line. And, it, and as I said to you at the beginning, due process, it doesn't mean that every person has a full-blown, you know, gigantic hearing that lasts for days. 
uh, due process is a simple, hey, you say you, you're eligible for asylum, you say you want refuge in the United States based on the fact that you're going to be persecuted, tell us about it. And it's a, it should be as simple as that. Sure. And if the person says, well, the reason I want to stay is because I want to get a job and make better money. And in my country, there's bad people and I won't be there. I'm sorry, the law doesn't qualify you. So you don't get a hearing. That, that is your hearing. You're going home. Should be as simple as that. It's really jamming it at the border. You make them assert it right away and you, then you have the ability to start the clock and shut it down. So let me ask you this, and I, I know you know we got to wrap it up here. You you got to you got to run, um, but I'd be remiss not to get your response to this <laughs> because you again worked under the INS and then towards the end of your career as it was transitioning over to DHS. Is do you believe there's a problem with USCIS that you know back in the day INS had the keys to the castle, the law enforcement guys were the ones that heard it. And they wouldn't put up with these frivolous claims. But now you have a whole new agency. You have USCIS that has asylum adjudicators that aren't, you know, like the way we would view as ICE or immigration officers. Their whole job is more, you know, you got a lot of people that want to, oh, I want to give asylum. They get into that profession, similar with immigration judges. Do you believe that there's too much of that going on at USCIS and they're just waving these people through? Yes. The short answer is yes. I, I mean, it was it was well intentioned. I, again, I was around in 2003 when when uh, you know the, the implemented uh, the creation of of homeland security and and you know some of us, many of us, enforcement folks went to ICE. The rest of the folks went to USCIS, and you know, of course, Border Patrol and others went to CBP. Uh, it, that created an entirely different career path for a lot of folks. And, and like you said, unfortunately, uh, there, there were a lot of folks and, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with that. It becomes wrong when you're a government official who's sworn to uphold the law and you start interpreting the law in a way that allows you perhaps to, to, uh, skirt some of the prohibitions in the law for, for national seeking to enter the United States. The law enforcement folks are concerned, of course, with different things. They push different things. But I can tell you in my capacity, you know, back in the day with the government, I've actually read the Riot Act to senior USCIS officials who weren't assisting us in our law enforcement effort. And we're talking in national security matters, uh, basically saying, look, you do this. This is what's going to happen. Uh, it's unfortunate, but I but I I do see that there's a problem. With USCIS, I also unfortunately see that there's a problem of efficiency with the entire homeland security process. I mean, the CB folks, CBP folks, especially the Border Patrol, it, you know, they've got to be the single most oppressed group of folks, in my opinion, uh, that exist in federal government right now, because you know they carry badges, carry guns, they they have a law enforcement function, but they're not allowed to do the job. And they're not allowed to do their job for all sorts of variety of, of political and public policy reasons. Uh, and then they know that they're part of a system that has created this and, and frankly, you know, isn't supporting them. And then you get, you know, the, the ICE group, with the exception of the detention removal folks that are sent out to, to pick people up, you know, to enforce the orders. I mean, you've got ICE agents and, and ICE 
attorneys that, that say, you know, I don't want to be involved in that stuff. Um, yeah, I, I'd rather do a high profile case than do, uh, you know, <laughs> a, a basic asylum case. You know, I, that's the unfortunate thing. Okay, because that's the thing to me. Back in the day, you had INS, and I was thinking you had Operation Wetback in in 1954. And again, that was before IRA IRA. It was, if anything, the laws were weaker. Um, and they re- removed hundreds of thousands. And those are people that were here for a while, not just kind of at the border. Um, it was all over the country, interior, removed them. I don't see any record of major lawfare over it. And it was done. I mean, like that INS commissioner was everything. And now it seems like with the creation of Eeyore at the Justice Department in the 80s, and then later on with DHS, and then now you got, you know, the trifurcated animal. You got ICE, Border Patrol, USCIS. So you could have ICE and Border Patrol that are committed lawmen that want to uphold our sovereignty. But my fear is that the USCIS adjudicators and the immigration judges seem to have the keys to the castle. Well, that's right. And, and again, you, you, you very succinctly and, and precisely put it. I mean, it used to be like the example I gave you regarding the Nicaraguans. You know, the regional commissioner brought in his people, adjudications, legal, you know, the Border Patrol uh, operations, INS investigations, and the decision was made. And when we left that room, that decision that the regional commissioner made was the decision. Nobody went off on their own tangent and did their own thing. And now you've got three separate entities, four, if you count EOIR, doing their own thing. And sometimes they don't mesh. In fact, I would tell you a lot of times they don't <laughs> mesh. Uh, and, and the other thing, and I represent a lot of USCIS people in employment matters, uh, the unhappiness comes from the fact that they're, they're USCIS command is pushing numbers adjudications by numbers, you know, it's not quality, it's quantity. Do, you know, approve all the applications, you know, and, and I mean, there's denials, denials happen all the time, but, but the, but the reality is we're going to give you 45 minutes to make this adjudication and, and you got to do it right. And, And the one truism that they all know is if you deny an alien, they're right. And they're represented you're likely going to face a lawsuit or at least a, a oh, you know, somebody, a, a lawyer, a lawyer complaining to your bosses. If you approve it, guess what? Unless the person ends up being a terrorist down the road, nobody's ever going to hear about it. <sighs> because there's no lawyer for the American people. I mean, that's, that's the problem. It, it's that's an right. individual versus the abstract sovereignty. And every day, every day, like I was just dealing with ICE officials. They were likely, and I can't say it, definitively yet, but it looks apparently likely that this latest machete attack in my home state in Maryland, uh, MS-13, three individuals were resettled as UACs. <laughs> they were resettled as refugees right. in the country. Right. And, you know, you'll, it, it just will never get traced back. There was a Guatemalan Ohio we dealt with last week that um, locked a girl up and raped her a million times in there. And again, you'll never... It's never going to be traced back. The needs and desires and wants of the illegals are apparent immediately and upfront, and they're individualized. The liabilities to America is too abstract, too spread out. And, um, you know, this is how every claim in law for an individual illegal, they're able to argue to its fullest degree, and then sometimes a hundred, 
Whereas who's going to enforce the 1182 and admissibilities? I mean, you know, that's, that's the problem. So I, I look, I know you can't talk about pending litigation and what you do, but in general, are you seeing a lot of morale problems at, at you know, Border Patrol, DHS in general? Well, as I like to tell my friends, I, I didn't know 11 years after, you know, I, I retired early from uh, federal service, but 11 years after leaving Homeland Security, they're still paying my salary. Uh, and that's because I have so many cases all over the country of really disgruntled folks that are dealing with a, in my opinion, uh, if not a fully broken, but but certainly broken system uh, that allows for, once again, you know, adjudication, not by uh, quality, but quantity, uh, oppressive uh, performance standards, oppressive management techniques that, that really don't seem to care much about, in my opinion, what the operation is all about. It, it cares more with, okay, let's, let's fill the niche and let's, you know, do a certain amount of adjudications in a particular period of time. And what happens to the people that are doing that in the interim is not an issue. And the only time that becomes a problem, the only time the brakes are put on is when there's a crisis, again, a terrorist attack. And somebody starts saying, oh, we're going to look and find out why that terrorist got into the United States and who gave him his green card. That's when everybody starts shaking in their boots and saying, "Okay, now we got a CYA and we got to find somebody to blame because the checks weren't done, the reviews weren't done, the adjudications were too quick, and you know nobody really paid attention. You know, my opinion is that again, going back to the very basics of our conversation, the laws are there, the rules are there, even the folks are there. You got a lot of really, really committed federal employees working for Homeland Security and all the other uh, collateral agencies they got to be allowed to do their job and they got to be allowed to be creative and they've got to be allowed to do it in the best way they can for the thing they swore to do. And that's to represent and enforce the laws for the American people. And unfortunately you don't see much of that in my opinion these days. Exactly. There's plenty of NGOs, there's plenty of charity groups that you could deal with national, international, global, Border Patrol is to patrol. <laughs> it's it's that simple. It's not an NGO for Central America for any other country. Um, it's it's the Declaration of Independence. It's a social contract. It's why we have government. It's of, by, and for the sovereign of the whole of the people. And I just, yeah, I, I can't relate to this, but I thanks, thank you so much for your time. I meant to do half the show with you, but we did the whole show today. Um, and I still, I jumped around and didn't even get to half of what I wanted to get to. So would you please come back again? Absolutely. I, I really uh, appreciate you having me on and uh, I appreciate what you're doing. So thank you very much. And you, you tell me when and I'll, I'll, I'll make it happen. Perfect. There you have it, folks. That was Dan Vera. He is a lifelong immigration attorney, as well as former top counsel at INS there at the scene of the crime. Uh, really solid insights and uh, send me your feedback. Let me know what you guys think. And uh, I just wanted to say, it's truly terrific. I didn't even realize until today what Dan does, that he actually represents whistleblowers, you know, people that are disgruntled, that get their hands cuffed, um, law enforcement. It's, it's just really good to hear. I mean, when was the last time you heard of an immigration attorney like that? <laughs> So um, I'm certainly going to bring him back a lot and 
ask him questions and let me know if you want uh, me to ask him any other questions offline. We could discuss it on the show to the extent he could speak about it. Um, lots more going on when the week is just getting started. Would love your comments, questions, and feedback. As always, dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. God bless y'all. Until tomorrow, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.